0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you. And I uh, just appreciate the opportunity to come bring you the word. And it's not just that the word of God is real for the children, it's real for us as well. And so it's my prayer it would impact us and change us today. But I have a question to begin our time Have you ever had a splinter? right? A splinter in your finger, maybe you're doing something, and the worst is like if there's a splinter under your fingernail. Ooh, yeah, ouch, right? Many of you might know that Aaron Long, kind of our resident woodworking elder, he uh, loves to do different things with wood, and he actually made this podium, and it is so smooth, right? I could run my hands over it so many times, I'm not going to get a splinter. In fact, it's so smooth, it doesn't hold my papers up like I want it to, but (laughs) Um, you should, after the service, ask Aaron about the splinter of all splinters. It was a different project, not this one that he was working on. He loves to tell this story, so I'm sure he'll be fine telling it again. Of the splinter he got one time, he was moving his hand across one of his boards, and a piece of wood not just stuck in his finger, but went all the way through his finger, in one side, out the other at some point, we should stop calling it a splinter and start calling it a spike. So, Aaron, you had a spike in your finger. And I bring this up because our passage that I want to look at today in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you have a Bible, you can start turning there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The apostle Paul uses a phrase called the thorn in his flesh. There's a thorn in his in his flesh, And you maybe you've heard about this passage. It's a pretty common one. And this phrase has actually been adopted in the world. You'll, you'll hear it out there in society of people talking about the foreign in the flesh. Some kind of annoyance or problem. Something that just kind of is bothering them. It's like a splinter in your finger. It just is, impacts your day. But most of the time we use that expression. It's kind of like... A general, small annoyance, but not a major life-changing kind of event. But I hope to show you that through this text, it's more like a spike than a splinter that God gives us and what Paul was experiencing. Not just a small annoyance that's like, ooh, that stings. But like, life has changed. Something is different I'm altering my day because of this event. And just as another form of illustration, I, in my neighborhood, there is a tree. I went and found this, uh, I don't know what kind of a weed it is, but it grows around these trees. These spikes are just completely wrapped around this tree in the neighborhood. And these things are so sharp. I, I use like, a tool to get it off of there, because it was just it cut my hand anyway. It got me. But uh, Jeremiah, my son, for Christmas this last year, got an artificial piece of flesh. Um, and I know you're wondering, like, who gets that for Christmas? Don't worry, it was not the weirdest gift he got <laughs> at Christmas time. But it's an artificial piece of flesh that you can use to, like, practice sewing and stuff on stitches or whatever. But imagine the thorn in the flesh. And so we're just going to just jab this oh ouch right that changes your day right there if you had that sticking inside of you so we'll leave that up there as the reminder of the thorn in the flesh but like i said we're in second corinthians chapter 12 let's read our passage and hear from the lord and see if we can't see what paul was getting at here So 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. you join with me in praying and asking the Lord to apply this to our lives today? Let's pray. Lord, we come to You week. Wherever we are, whatever we're going through in this moment, whatever thorns You have given to us, we need You. We need You to, to speak to us this morning. Your Word is true. but Sometimes, Lord, it is hard to believe. So God, give us the faith to trust in you this morning, to trust in what you have to share with us. May only your truth go out from here and reach the minds and hearts of all those who hear. May you be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen. So from this passage, I want to highlight three basic things. And if you're a writing down kind of person, you can write these down. as the three headings that will guide our time together. The first one is painful thorns. Painful thorns. We'll learn about those in Paul's life. The second point we're going to cover is ridiculous grace. Ridiculous grace. And then the third one is a powerful presence. A powerful presence. So let's start with the painful thorns. So it helps to catch up in our context here, because we are just kind of jumping right into the end of a book of 2 Corinthians. What Paul has been doing since really chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians is making a defense of his ministry. He's showing that he has the authority of an apostle. He has the ability to teach them, to preach at them, to to correct them and encourage them. The Corinthian church had been following after these super apostles that uh, impressed them with lots of signs and wonders. And they struggled back in their day, much like we struggle today, is that we are easily led astray by people that are very charismatic, that are uh, have these big pride and egos and that show a lot of power and strength. And the Corinthian church was kind of being led astray to where they started to doubt the Apostle Paul and what he would say. So they could say, oh, who's going to care about Paul? He's He's not even here with us. He didn't even take a collection when he was here because he didn't think he was good enough to get paid, you know, making silly arguments about why Paul's words would not be authoritative. But Paul, he's saying, you guys have it all wrong. And since chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians, he's saying that he has authority as an apostle. He has the power of God in the gospel. Therefore, he doesn't need to rely on all these other things that the super apostles We're pointing out as their authority structure. He's saying, I don't need any of that. I just have the Lord and I have his truth. But Paul goes along with the Corinthians on this little thought experiment. And so he says a couple of times, like, I'm going to speak like a madman, like, like I'm crazy. And it's just like, I'm a fool for speaking like this. And he enters into their argument of all the things that they seem to value and then Paul just gives his list of why even on the things that they value in Corinth, he still is better than all the super apostles. And he can he can outbeat them for any of the things that they claim, whether it's power or authority or wisdom. And as part of that list of things that he can, as speaking like a madman, show that he's better than these other men, he talks about some visions in the beginning of chapter 12. As God catches him up to the third heaven to be in the very presence or throne room of God and Paul sees some amazing things. But Paul did not have to prove himself with this. In fact, the argument he's making is not, hey, I had some visions, so you should listen to me. It was, yeah, I've had some visions, But to keep me from being conceited, from boasting in that, as if that put me on a different playing field than anyone else, God gave me some thorns in the flesh. A thorn in my flesh that kept me humble and weak. And notice that it's God who gives the thorn in the flesh. As if it was a gift from God to drive a spike into his child. Now I know it's described as a messenger of Satan, but here, just like in the rest of Scripture and really throughout all of history, Satan is always used, always used by the Lord for his greater purposes. It's not as if Satan has free reign to do as he pleases, when he pleases. All that Satan would mean for evil, God Can mean for good, just like Joseph says of his brothers, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. Well, here Paul can say to Satan, Satan, what you meant for evil and pain against me, God meant for good. It was a gift, and I thank him for it. Now, in Paul's day and since then, there have been a lot of speculations about what this thorn in his flesh was. Was it physical? Was it mental? Was it spiritual? And to be honest, we're just not told. And so we do not know. So we'll leave it in speculation land. But in reality, I think it's better that we do not know. Because then it could be more relatable to where we're coming from. And I think the Lord can use it in many different circumstances and situations. So are you struggling with something physical? A disease, a diagnosis that holds you down? Constant pain that just does not go away. There are many of our members who would describe their lives as lives of pain. Of torment. Where there's pain in a particular leg or arm. And I've heard this many times. I just wish that we could just cut it off. There are many people who have to endure physical difficulties for the rest of their lives. That could be your thorn. Is your problem maybe emotional or mental? Are there experiences or trauma in your life that you've had to endure that have caused emotional scars? Pain deep within that affects your personality, all of your hopes and dreams and wants. Those things that that you care about most have been impacted by this situation years ago, by the way you were raised, by parents, by loved ones. The way you trust others or don't trust others, the way you love and receive love, has that been jaded or wounded by trauma or abuse? Perhaps this is your thorn, something you wrestle with and will continue to wrestle with the rest of your life. Maybe your thorn is spiritual. And you battle against the principalities, against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers. You fight against sin and Satan. And many times you feel like you are losing in this battle against evil and temptation. Perhaps your thorn is spiritual. Let's be honest, these thorns, whichever one you struggle with, or maybe a few of each, they hurt. They're painful. They're more like spikes than splinters. They change our day. They change our lives. They change the way we think. In chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about some of the physical beatings he went down and that he suffered, being whipped, and he was shipwrecked, and he spent a day and a night at sea. He was thrown in prison. There was even a time where they beat him so bad they thought he was dead, and they kind of left him out in the garbage. Then he wakes up and crawls back into town. Right? Paul was a tough, tough guy that had been through a lot. He had wrestled with Satan in the spiritual realm through prayer and evangelism and going town to town facing resistance and lies and corruption. He'd been betrayed. He'd he'd had his good friends turn on him. He'd had strife throughout his ministry. Paul had experienced all of these thorns. He was a tough guy. And so this thorn that God gives to him is no small thing, whatever it was. Paul is pleading with the Lord to remove it. If it was just some small splinter, I don't think Paul would use that word where he pleaded with the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times, begging God Take this from me. God, save me. God, help me. Rescue me, Lord. These are not the kind of average pre-dinner thank you for the food, one-liners thrown up to the Lord kind of prayers. This is that pleading of the soul. That desperation. That place where you just fall to your knees and you're just giving everything, and you say, I have nothing left, Lord. I need you. I beg you, please, Lord, rescue my child. Bring health to this one who is near to death. God, fix my marriage. God, take this addiction from me. God, save me from myself. God, save me from this world. And we plead with God, time and time again. And Paul pleads three times in that fashion. Lord, remove this thorn from me. And then he hears from God. He receives an answer. I'm not so sure it's the answer he was thinking he would receive. Look back at verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you? Okay, God, I'm sorry I asked, I guess. It makes me feel like I shouldn't have been praying. Is that what he's saying? Like, my grace is just, it's sufficient for you. No need to pray any longer. As a 10-year-old boy, my family took a friend of mine and a few other friends to the beach in California to go play in the waves and build sandcastles and go body surfing and all the fun stuff you do at the beach. Well, as we were playing throughout the day, my friend, my friend started playing more with my older brother than with me. My older brother was way cooler and stronger and faster and he could swim deeper into the ocean and do cooler things on his boogie board. And so my friend started hanging out with my brother more than he was hanging out with me. I started to get more and more upset about this and eventually I just broke and I ran back to our little camper thing that we had at the time. I went inside and I began to cry. Just broken hearted. Nobody loves me. My friends think my brother's cooler. Nobody's playing with me. Right? Super sad. And then my dad comes in after finding me. And my dad was a very compassionate man. He was very thoughtful and wise. And so he listens to my story, listens to my pain. Then I can still see his face as he kind of leans in. And he says, suck it up. Get out there and have a good time. We didn't come to the beach for you to be in here and cry. Go out and have some fun. Right now. Yes. Up. Go. Let's see it. Smile. Is that what God is saying to Paul? Suck it up, Paul. Haven't I done enough for you already? My grace is sufficient. You don't need this. Let's get up. Get back to work. Get back to preaching. Forget about that thorn. Uh, I don't think that's what God is saying to Paul. Now, it worked for me. I went out and had a great time. That's what my, my dad was wise. He knew that's what I needed. But here, I think God is saying something slightly different. Because of how Paul uses this in his argument, I don't think that God is just saying to him, suck it up deal with it he's talking about his grace and how his grace is sufficient for paul so let's talk about that word grace for a moment grace is that favor or the blessing from god that is undeserved it's something you receive that you did not work for you did not earn you're not owed it It's God leaning in towards you to be able to give you something that is good. It's God giving you what you do not deserve. Some benefit of His, some blessing from Him. That is grace. And let me tell you that God's grace is ridiculous grace. So that's our second point this morning, this ridiculous grace of God. Now when something is ridiculous, and I like that word, Uh, Because it means that it's open to ridicule because it's laughably absurd. It's outrageous or difficult to believe. That makes it ridiculous. Laughably outrageous and hard to believe. When Sarah heard the news from the Lord in her 90s, hey, you're going to have a baby, she thinks it's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, Grace. And she laughs. And that's when we get Isaac from. In fact, last week we were sitting at lunch. It was with my grandmother who's in her 90s. And I said to her, I said, hey, grandma, you're only a few years away from when Sarah had Isaac. Maybe you could get pregnant soon and I could get a new aunt or uncle. How cool would that be? And she laughed out loud because it was ridiculous that she could get pregnant in her 90s. But that's God's grace for Sarah. It was silly to think about. And here, Paul says that God's grace, this ridiculous grace of God that's hard to believe, hard to imagine, it is sufficient. And this This word is in that kind of present perfect tense. I'm not an English major, but what it means is it's not just that God was good to you once in the past and that was good enough, but it's a continuing action that God was good to you, is being good to you, and will be good to you. It is that kind of sufficient, it is that kind of enduring grace sufficiency. And Jesus says that his grace is sufficient. And again, just like I'm no English major, I'm also no Greek specialist. And I took like one semester in college and I've forgotten it all. But the word sufficient here, it's fascinating, is the word "arkē." I hope that's how you pronounce it. "arkē," And it implies this enduring strength mixed with an idea of satisfaction. That's why I like that. There's a satisfaction in the sufficiency. There is enough grace to finish. Enough grace to complete the task. There's enough that you will have all that you need. See, Paul, he liked to boast in his weakness. But here in our passage, he adds this word that he will gladly boast in his weakness he adds some excitement to it because he's showing that the painful thorn that God had given him highlights in his life this ridiculous grace that God really has for him so you have to ask a question why how how is it that Paul's thorn shows this grace that God has for him how is it sufficient in sustaining Well, this grace is complete. If you look here, it says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Then verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, there's that satisfaction piece, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, Then I am strong. See, it's proved itself out through time to be sufficient. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says, It is finished, he uses the same word that Paul uses here when he says, It is made perfect in weakness. It's finished. Jesus says, it is finished, it is perfect, it is complete, it is enough. And here Paul says, this grace in my life is perfect, it is complete, it is enough, it is sufficient. Paul loved the grace of God, and so should we. He saw it and he repeated this idea over and over again about the abundance of God's grace. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, he says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he uses this phrase, the abundance of grace. Paul knew that God's grace was ridiculously large. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5, this is the passage we read a moment ago, says it like this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show... The immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And again, in Ephesians 1, you can look about how Paul repeats the phrase of God's glorious grace, or this grace that God has lavished upon us, or the grace of the riches of his grace. On and on, Paul will go in his writings about this grace of God that is magnificent and huge and powerful and full and complete. And here Paul says, That grace has met me in my pain, and it was enough. See, we can't get the wrong idea when we use the word sufficient. I've thought about this passage wrong before in my life. Do a little experiment, maybe later. Go home, enjoy lunch or dinner at some point today. And if your wife or your husband makes it for you, and then after the meal they say, oh, what did you think? Did you like it? Respond with, it was sufficient. (laughs) That's how I thought God's grace was in my life. It was enough could have been better if God would have fixed this thorn in my life. But I guess I'll take it. It gets the job done. At least I get to go to heaven. But for now, eh, his grace is sufficient. That is not what Paul means. There's a story of Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, uh, that Davey actually uh, mentioned last week. Charles Spurgeon was on his way home after a long day of of working and serving in the church. And this verse comes to his mind. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Spurgeon starts to think of himself and he imagines himself as a little fish in the Thames River. And after a little while of swimming and having all that water flowing through his gills and drinking it down, As a little fish, he starts to grow concerned. Oh, no, perhaps I will drink the Thames dry. But then Father Thames says to the little fish, Oh, little fish, worry not. My river is sufficient for you. Drink up. And then Spurgeon thinks of himself as a little mouse, a little mouse nibbling away at the granaries of Egypt. And as he's eating, he starts to grow concerned. Oh no, perhaps I will eat it all, and then I will starve to death. And then along comes Joseph and says, Ah, little mouse, little mouse, nibble away, for my granaries are sufficient for you. And then Spurgeon thinks of himself as as a climber up on top of a mountain, hiking away and breathing heavily, all of a sudden, growing concerned that with every deep breath, perhaps he would breathe all the air out of the atmosphere. And then the creator booms from heaven: breathe, O oh man, breathe. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. And I would add to sermons or to, to Spurgeon's illustration that I imagine myself. At the foot of the cross, and I see my sins begin to pile up higher and higher and higher. Before too long, I can hardly see the tip of the cross with Christ upon it. And I start to grow concerned. Perhaps I have sinned too much. Perhaps I have gone too far. Maybe I have outsinned the grace of the Lord. And then Jesus from the cross looks down at me and says, My son, worry not. My grace is sufficient for you. His grace will abound more than my ability to sin. It will not run dry and it will not disappoint. That is what Paul means. By my grace is sufficient for you. This is, I think, why the prosperity gospel seems so offensive and it's completely backwards. Because they make the opposite point of what Paul is making in this passage. Because Paul is using this to say that God need not take this thorn from me to prove that He is good, that He is gracious, and that He deserves all my praise and adoration. When the prosperity gospel would say, only if God were to heal this in your life, if God were to give you this thing, then He would be good. Then you could give Him praise. That would be worthwhile. That would be amazing. But no, Paul says he does not need to fix my pain in order to deserve my praise. God's immeasurable gift of grace is not dependent on the way He answers my prayers. Because His grace is sufficient. And the way it's sufficient is not because He gives us all these other things. It's because He gives us Himself. Which is how He concludes our little section here. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. So today, if you feel like God's favor is not on your life, because He has not answered that pleading, if you're still stuck in your weakness and you feel tired, perhaps you feel like you've sinned so much that you've exhausted the grace of God when you have nothing else to cling to. My prayer is that you would cling to his ridiculous grace and you would see it as enough. It'd be enough for you. In fact, God may have you at just where he wants you in your weakness and pain, so that he could more fully meet with you and give you himself. John MacArthur uh, wrote a commentary about this section, and I love this little paragraph out of it. So I'd like to read this. Here's what MacArthur says about this last few verses. It is when believers are out of answers, out of confidence, and out of strength, with nowhere else to turn but to God, that they are in a position to be most effective. No one in the kingdom of God is too weak to experience God's power, but many are too confident in their own strength physical suffering, mental anguish, disappointment, unfulfillment and failure squeeze the impurities out of believers' lives, making them pure channels through which God's power can flow. That's good. And that leads us to our third and final point of God's powerful presence. God's powerful presence. We had a pretty fun experience at my house this last week or a little over a week ago. And by fun experience, I mean the house almost burned down. Um, the power was flickering in our dining room, and our kitchen. The lights would come and go and you'd plug some things in certain outlets and it would work and then not work. The microwave would work and then not work. And for a couple of days, there was just this weird power flow. And so I thought, you know, the master electrician that I am, I was like, well, I'll check the, you know, the breakers. And it wasn't tripped. So I said, well, that's the extent of my knowledge. And so I don't know what to do now. And But the, the lights kept coming and going. And eventually, it just went out completely. So I called a trusty friend. And uh, Angie came over. And she's got the tools that, you, you know, you stick stuff in the sockets. And it reads things. And she knew what she was doing. And I just watched and, and held the screws and stuff, you know. And after tracing things down, we discovered that in the light fixture in our kitchen, we take it down, and it apparently is a hub of wires coming and going through all different directions. Literally 15 or 20 different wires all connected up in there. And they were all burned to a crisp. The plastic sheets were melted. The box was all black. It was a disaster. And I was like, whoa. There's like, we had a fire in here. There was a fire in my ceiling. And I'm starting to think, what could possibly have gone wrong? Well, after some sleuthing and looking around, apparently there was some homeowner that had no idea what he was doing five or six years ago that used the wrong kind of wire nut, and by homeowner I mean myself, that... Those things are apparently rated, like how strong they are. You can only put so many wires together, otherwise it gets overloaded. There's different types of those. Had no idea. I figured if it fits, it works, right? (laughs) Not the case. And so uh, I used a too small of a wire nut, apparently, and it was gone. Like just the very tip of it was left. Everything else was burned and melted away. And uh, that's what caused the fire See, in order to have proper power flow, you need the appropriate equipment. In order to have proper power flow, you need the appropriate equipment. The skinny little wires in my house would be wholly inappropriate to try and use to transfer all the electricity from the power plant into Omaha, right? You couldn't do that. It'd be too much through that teeny little wire. Just like that little wire nut had too much power going through it, It eventually started a fire. Well, just like so many things in the kingdom of God, it's reversed. See, it's not that God is looking for the strongest wire, the biggest, the best, the most talented. He's looking for the weakest, the smallest, and the most in need. And when you stay plugged into the power of this world and into your own strength, you restrict the flow of the power of Christ in your life. So it's when you become weak that you become strong because it's the strength of the Lord. Because what Paul received when he prayed and pleaded with God to remove this painful thorn was not an answer to his prayer to take it out of his flesh. What he received was Christ Himself. When I have no strength left, the strength of the Lord sustains me. When I have no answers, I'm forced to trust in the wisdom of God. When I am out of resources, then the immeasurable grace of God becomes my source of joy in the midst of my suffering. It becomes my hope in the fear and the light in the darkness. Jesus said, once come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you never find yourself laboring and heavy laden, you will not go to Christ to find his rest. Because you will be satisfied with yourself. So get unconnected with the strength of the world and get plugged in to the power of Christ. This is fascinating that this word rest in verse 9. How the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's the same word that John uses in John 1.14 where it says that and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt. It's the word for the tabernacle. So in John, it's the word tabernacled with us. And here Paul uses it that uh, the power of Christ might tabernacle with me. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, what the tabernacle was, the tabernacle was that place that God came to meet and be with his people. It was that special tent that they had to design in the wilderness, and Moses gave them all the instructions. Now, in their day, there was all of these barriers between the presence of God and the people of God, so that when God tabernacled with them, he would hang out in the little tent, but the people had to stay on the outside because they had to be removed from his holiness lest they be consumed by it. Right? And they had rituals and offerings and sacrifices and priests in order to draw close and draw near to God. But then here comes Jesus. And He tabernacles and dwells with us. Instead of us, His people, going to meet with Him at His tent, He comes and meets with us and walks with us and heals the sick, heals the blind, brings life to the dead and preaches hope to the hopeless, Jesus comes to us to tabernacle with us. But then look at what Paul says here. Not that we have to go to Jesus, to the tabernacle, not even that Jesus comes and hangs out with us, but that he will be in us, with us, wherever we go. See, the disciples, they could go hang out in one town while Jesus was in another. So they weren't with him in that moment. But wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever painful thorn is sticking in your flesh, whatever time of day, Christ is with you. His tabernacle surrounds you. There are no longer any barriers. He has torn that veil. And He has come out and He is with you wherever you are. And His power will rest upon you as you go. It's the Lord drawing near in intimacy with us. And really, this is the whole story of the Bible if you think about it. God with us. God making a way for Him to come be with us. And this moment for Paul is when he draws all the more closer to that completed task of the Lord, of being near to His people again. And so Paul, he's like, yeah, give me more calamity. Give me persecution. Give me weakness. Give me beatings and jail time and discouragement. Because in those moments, that's when I get the most of Christ. And that is what satisfies my soul. So he boasts in the truth that he will become weak so that he can trust in the ridiculous grace of God and see the power of Christ flow in his life. And this is what you and I are invited into as well. The end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We join him in his suffering so that we can unite to him in a unique way. This is the only way that the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 could say these words And the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul invites us to count all things in our lives as loss, so that we might gain the powerful presence of Jesus Christ. So when the painful thorns in your life seem to hurt the most, and when your cries seem to go unheard, rejoice, rejoice in the powerful presence of Christ, and boast, boast to the world, to Satan, and to your own heart the ridiculous grace that God has for you and be satisfied with the sufficiency of His grace in your life. Let's pray. Lord, this is a message that we all need to hear at one time or another. We all in this life will experience thorns, pain, suffering, loss. Many of us are there right now, uncertain of what to do, how to proceed, and we are on our knees and we're crying out to you. And Lord, you, consider, you, you tell us to keep praying because you might answer our prayers. If it is in your will, Lord, you will do miracles. You will draw near And you might remove that thorn. Lord, I pray that all of us, whether you remove the thorn or not, would give you praise for the powerful presence that you've brought into our lives. And may we experience you, love you, embrace you, and feel your love in our lives in a unique way, in our moment of weakness. May we, just like Paul, say, We are strong because you are with us. So Lord, sustain us. Give us endurance that we so desperately need. Help us to have faith for one more day. Lord, draw us close. And may we rejoice in the gifts that you give to us. Even the thorns that bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.